In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the 41st episode of The Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. Today we have some really fun and exciting topics. Um, we'll talk about COVID. We'll talk about the con- need for continual pressure and criticism of Democrats, especially for their moderate proposals. And then we'll do a deep dive into marijuana legalization at the end. But first, a short word from our sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> No, that so was the we word. wanted to start off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, but before we start talking about that, uh, I want to talk about an interesting experience that I had recently. It was a it was an interaction that I had with a news article. So I got this news alert that was saying, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans are finally coming together and agreeing on something. And I was like, "Great. Is it pandemic related?" No, said the article. It was like, <laughs> okay, but it expands our civil liberties, right? No, Nathan, uh, it actually it actually reduces them. And I was like, okay, first off, article, how did you know my name? <laughs> Second off, what do you mean reduces them? It's like, yeah, they want to ban TikTok. And then I was silent for a few <laughs> seconds, and I thought, you're joking, right? Hey, at least they're all getting along to ban <laughs> short videos from from teenagers. <laughs> yeah. So Trump recently proposed a ban on TikTok, which Chuck Schumer, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, came out in favor of. And, and the reasoning that they're giving is because, so for those of you that don't know, TikTok is, a, is an app created by China. Uh, it's a social media app. I, I don't have much experience with it, but my students tell me that it's like sure. the new thing. It's like Vine, but but not Vine anymore. Yeah. <laughs> after Vine shut down, um, and it's and it's not owned by like the Chinese government. It's owned by like ByteDance, which yeah. is a Chinese tech firm. Now, the divide between any large firm and the Chinese government may be yeah. more <laughs> ceremonial than anything, but yeah. So basically, the argument is that this Chinese company is using the data it collects in order to number one influence uh social media users to be more sympathetic towards chinese values and number two to uh collect data on us in order to violate our privacy so two things about that number one you're honestly telling me that you want to make sure that we don't become like china so your solution is let's ban an entire social media platform like China has banned <laughs> Google and Facebook and Twitter and uh, social media, and I'm pretty platforms. sure YouTube as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that that's kind of counterproductive. And number two. All right. So are you also against taking out the Patriot Act? Are you also mm-hmm. against regulations to ensure that social media companies in the United States cannot sell our data? Oh wait, no. You recently passed a bill that actually made it easier for them to do that. So. The concern is not privacy. The concern is, well, you're not allowed to spy on our civilians. That's our job. And like the 
TikTok company has repeatedly obviously denied these claims. They say that their data is stored in um, data centers that are not within China and so not subject to Chinese law. They've also said that um, they don't censor and control the content in any way that is not similar to the way that U.S. companies control and censor content. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously they would say these things, and so, you know, we'd want to authenticate the truth of those claims. But ultimately, to Nathan's point, like, the internal inconsistency of the principles involved here is just baffling. Yeah. And at the same time, a U.S. company, Microsoft, is proposing buying TikTok's U.S. operations. Yeah. And Trump's opposed to that, which makes you wonder, what's he really opposed to because like if a u.s company owns these operations they obviously wouldn't be selling data to china they wouldn't be like you know putting out content and propaganda to put the chinese government in you know a position of influence of the american people so what's really the problem here yeah i mean i have an answer for that TikTok <laughs> users embarrassed the hell out of him during his tulsa rally i mean heck yeah i honestly i you might call that conspiratorial, but that's probably what first kind of put it on his radar. Yeah, exactly. Put a sour taste. And the in fact mouth. that Chuck Schumer and other Democrats are backing this proposal again. What's annoying is that the only time that Democrats and Republicans seem to be able to come together is when it's to violate civil liberties, to reduce civil liberties, rather than even like yeah, passing laws that would require them to disclose any. Um, kind of data sharing activities they have or, you know, taking regulatory steps to make sure that they are protecting us, yeah. truly. Now, Trump yeah. has recently backed off on this, but the fact that this was a focus during a goddamn global pandemic. I know, I know. is just insane. Yeah, it's also not national security, which people have been like, which it's easy to get a little bit mixed up when you're talking about cybersecurity and the government, maybe you're talking about national security. Nope. Just personal privacy. So yeah. anyway, enough on this silliness. Let's focus yeah. on the stuff that really matters. With that, let's hear an update on the COVID numbers. Sure thing. So worldwide, we've got 18.7 million cases, which is a 13% increase over last week. Um, We've got, we're at 702,000 deaths worldwide, or a 7% increase over last week. And we've got 11.8 million recovered, which is a 16% increase over last week. And at this point, the total proportion of cases recovered is 63%, which is up from 61% last week. So again, worldwide, we're seeing recoveries increasing at a faster rate than cases. Um, but we have seen an increase in the rate of... of um, in like the total increase in deaths from, I think it was 4% last week. Now it's at 7% week over week. So, um, but in the U S the story is pretty much similar to the world, which depending on the view you take, maybe good, maybe bad. Um, at this point we've got 4.9 million cases in the U S which is a 12% increase over last week. So it's a slightly slower than the worldwide increase. We've got 160,000 deaths or a 7% increase from week over week, so right in line with the worldwide death increase. And we've got 2.5 million recovered, or a 19% increase over last week. And at this point, um, we've got 51% recovered of all cases, up from 48% last week. 
So overall, things are mostly in line with the rest of the world. And the bad news is that um, the increase in week-over-week spread and death are both faster than the two prior weeks. Yeah. Did you did you happen to catch any of uh, the Axios interview with Donald Trump, Michael? Yes. You know, I did catch some of that, and it caught me yeah. by... <laughs> yeah, that was pretty... That, that was, pretty was pretty embarrassing, embarrassing I mean, and disconcerting. Yeah, we're seeing recoveries like are increasing faster than cases, but it seems like we're getting into this place where, you know, we're no longer thinking that increases in the rate of spread are a bad thing. Yeah, like Trump specifically said, quote, I think you have a you have to have a positive outlook. Otherwise, you'd have nothing. And then later he said, they're dying. That's true. And it is what it is. So like yeah. that's the president of the United States during a pandemic saying, you know, people are going to keep dying, but just the really important thing is to keep on a happy face. Otherwise we would have nothing. <laughs> yeah. So one of the parts of it that I thought was the most jarring was when Trump was trying to put a higher focus on the number of deaths uh, based on the total number of cases rather than the number of deaths based on the entire population. So, Uh, Jonathan Swan, who is the interviewer, was basically trying to uh, figure out what Trump was trying to say. And there's this really weird exchange where he's pointing at a he's pointing at a graph and he says the United States is lowest in numerous categories. We're lower than the world, which makes no sense. Um, So then Swan was (laughs) like uh, lower than the world. What does that mean? Then Trump said we're lower than Europe. Take a look. Take a look right here. And he, he showed a page. He's like, high, up at the top is high, down at the bottom is low. U.S. line lower than world line. Um, so so he, shows, he shows the graph to Jonathan Swan, to which Swan says, oh, you're doing deaths as a proportion of cases. I'm talking about deaths as a proportion of population. That's where the U.S. is really bad, much worse yeah. than South Korea, Germany, etc., yeah. And then Trump said, you can't do that. Swan said, why can't I do that? And then Trump was like, you have to go by, you have to go by where, look, here is the United States. You have to go by the cases of death. So basically what he's arguing is that you can't look at the total number of deaths based on the entire population of the United States. You have to look at it based on case numbers. So if there's a lower mortality rate based on the number of case numbers, that's the relevant number. But that makes no sense because if you are bungling a pandemic response, then I'm not saying that it's not irrelevant. I'm not saying that it's not irrelevant um, to say, yeah, they're both absolutely relevant. Um, It's absolutely relevant to point out, okay, well, we have a lower death rate than a lot of other countries. We don't have the lowest, but we have a much lower death rate um, based on the number of cases than a lot of other countries. That's, That's fine to point out. Uh, that means that we've done a better job of treating it. That Yeah, exactly. But you also need to point out the fact that we have done a terrible job of containing it, of preventing yeah. people from spreading it. Yeah. And that is the biggest failure of the Trump administration during COVID-19. And that's what he was pointing out. More people based on the population of the United States have died than any of these other countries. Yeah. Which is like, so that is super important because ultimately the Trump administration could never possibly ever take credit 
for the lower mortality rate, unless it was specifically and exclusively tied to aid that the federal government has provided to hospitals. Yeah. Because ultimately it's about the effectiveness. It's about built in factors about our population, like preexisting conditions and overall health and about the effectiveness of our medical response. Other than that, it's not something that the Trump administration can control. What they can control is the rate of spread, contract tracing, testing, things like that, which makes the relevant number the deaths as a proportion of the population, to your point. Because yeah. if you think about it, you could have, you, let's do a counterfactual real fast. You could have a country where they have a super low mortality rate, you know, less than half a percent. But if everybody in the country got it, they would, one, have had a really crappy response because literally everyone would have gotten it. And the impact to the nation overall and the economy and literally the lives of the individuals would be significantly worse than even another country that had a much higher mortality rate but was able to contain the disease much more effectively. You could have 100% mortality rate that only spread to five people, and you would call that a win. I mean, at the end of the day... A lot of the policies that a lot of people have criticized Trump for not putting forth, like, you know, mandatory mask wearing or even or even early in the pandemic, acknowledging that people should wear masks. His his whole thing early in the pandemic was, yeah, you should probably wear masks. I'm not going to wear a mask. Um, If you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. If you don't want to wear a mask, don't wear a mask. But if we had made that mandatory from the very beginning, if he had invoked the Defense Production Act early in order to get private companies to make more ventilators and thus um, aid in the recovery of people with the virus, then we would not be as bad off as we are right now. And, yeah. and the annoying thing is even simple things like just acknowledging that it was a problem. I mean, he had his Tulsa rally where there was nobody wearing masks indoors, indoors. And what's worse that rally might have actually killed Herman Cain. So I'm sure a lot of you probably heard the news this week in case you hadn't. Uh, Herman Cain, who ran for president in 2012, passed away last week of COVID-19. And he tested positive for COVID a week after he had attended the Tulsa rally. Now, we can't say definitively that it was the Tulsa rally that did it, to be fair. But there are multiple pictures of him at the rally around people who are not wearing masks. He was not wearing a mask either. And there were multiple people that attended the rally that had that tested positive for COVID-19. So mm-hmm. it's not that much of a stretch to think that it's very likely that that rally killed Herman Cain. And yet... During all of this, when we are deep in the in continuing in the midst of this pandemic with um, failures of leadership leading to deaths left and right, Republicans are going back and forth over their stimulus bill. Um, so over the last couple of weeks, there there's actually been a fair amount of tension in the Republican Party, specifically in the Senate, over... Um, another round of economic stimulus. So like moderate Republicans, especially those that are in states that are up for re-election in 2020, are trying to put together a plan, you know, more similar to the CARES Act, while the more fiscal conservative 
uh, Republicans are stressing that we're spending too much and, you know, we don't want to help people too much because then they might not be forced to go back to, to back to work. Yeah. Right now we are facing an eviction crisis. Yeah. In fact, after the unemployment benefits ran out, 30 million Americans is, have been estimated to lose the enhanced unemployment benefit. 30 million Americans. That mm-hmm. is $600 a month that they were spending on rent, that they were spending on food, that they were spending on utilities. Yeah. And that running out is leading to a massive eviction crisis. Yeah, because at the end of July, for those of you who may not know, the enhanced you know, federal unemployment benefit of $600 a week expired. And Congress was set to go on recess in August. Now, it doesn't look like they're necessarily going to... Uh, they did that so they could focus on this bill, but they certainly don't have a fix in place. And in the meantime, families are just in limbo. And the annoying part of this is that the whole conservative argument, the whole argument against government benefits is that people need to take personal responsibility, that Mm -hmm. people need to put themselves in situations in which they are able to succeed financially by themselves. But that treats this entire pandemic like it's the fault of these individuals, like it's the fault of these 30 million individuals who are in danger of losing their houses, many of which have already been evicted. Yeah. That's treating it like it's their fault. And yeah. first off, if you believe that, you're an idiot. Second off, if you think that's okay, you're morally bankrupt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so let's talk a little bit about the plan that they're actually trying to put in place. So specifically on the unemployment benefit side, um, the proposal that the Republicans have put forward now, as a caveat, this would still have to get voted on by the Democrats, voted on by the House, um, and ultimately signed into law by Trump. Now, given that there are provisions missing and included that, you know, some that Trump don't like, some that the Democrats don't like, um, that seems like it's a further way off than we really need. But uh, at this point, what the Republicans have proposed is that they would require states to provide um, up benefits up to 70% of a uh, worker's previous wages um, by October. So until then, the government plans to provide $200 a week for additional unemployment benefits. Now, uh, to Nathan's point, this is down from $600. So significant, a significant reduction um, for the people that have lost their jobs as a result of this pandemic. And the other argument that they're making on that is, oh, well... a week, that's a lot more than a lot of these people have been making originally. So we can't be doing that. Michael and I have talked about this before, but that should not be the takeaway. If people are making more money on unemployment, making $600 a week, the takeaway should be, oh my God, we're we're paying people less than $600 a week? You can't live like that. If your takeaway... Yeah, if your takeaway is, oh, well, the working people, the working poor, they're getting too much. If that's your takeaway, then, I mean, honestly, I don't even know what to say to you at this point. Yeah, hard time (laughs) reaching you for sure. 
And so, so you wonder, like the the, stand, the question in my mind is, well, if it, if the goal is seventy percent of wages, is that enough? Would would one hundred percent of wages be enough? To Nathan's point, because, you know, forty percent of Americans, um, would be unable to get the money together to cover a four hundred dollar unexpected expense. So that's not just they don't have four hundred dollars in the bank account. That's they don't have four hundred dollars in available credit saved money, checking, assets they can liquefy. That's 40% of Americans that if their car broke down would struggle to be able to get the money together to pay for it. Yeah. Which it makes you wonder if 100% is even enough. And on top of this, the proposal by the finance committee would actually cap the amount of money that federal that the federal government would kick in. And so according to Ernie Tedeschi, who is part of the Obama uh, Treasury Department, this would mean that if you earn $50,000 a year or more before the pandemic and lost your job, you actually wouldn't even be able to make it up to the 70% target, which means that for those people, you know, they would be operating at significantly less than their pre-COVID income. And think about that. If you are used to an income of $50,000 a year, you likely have monthly expenses that are significantly higher than that of someone who you know, is used to a much smaller salary. You likely have a much higher mortgage. Your utilities yeah. are likely a lot higher. Yeah, exactly. So Go many ahead. of these, ultimately, so many of these relief programs, like you know, a, a moratorium on evictions, are just kicking the can down the road for the bills of these families, right? Like a moratorium on evictions or even a rent suspension still leaves rent piling up on the back end of the pandemic. So without a wage replacement, you are digging these families into thousands and thousands of dollars of debt that will ultimately either lead them to go entirely bankrupt or leave them paying off bills for years and years after the pandemic, which means that these people are being saddled with a huge amount of harm from the pandemic, even even just economic harm, which we have the power to prevent. This is why we should have done a UBI in the very beginning. Yeah. And the fact that we didn't, but we could afford to send massive amounts of money to corporations in order to bail them out in order to keep them afloat that really does tell you who the government is working for exactly yeah absolutely so to your point the in in this proposal the um, democrats are actually proposing to include a twelve hundred dollar stimulus payment with a similar structure to the one that came out as part of the cares act but to my mind like don't get me wrong I love having an extra 1200 bucks in my account, but I haven't lost my job. And so to my mind, you know, I'm a fan of the UBI, but if you're, if you are facing, if you're an economic conservative and you've got a certain amount of money to spend, why would you do, why would you opt for a UBI instead of trying to get that money to the people that need it most? Which to me looks a lot more like cruelty than economic conservatism. Now, ultimately I think we should do both. Like ultimately I think we should get, you know, as many programs out there as we possibly can to help stabilize our economy and, and our 
you know, in the face of this pandemic, but if they're operating with a, a small budget, I don't know why Chuck Grassley is opting for a UBI instead of enhanced unemployment benefits. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, though, I do think that UBI on top of that would be valuable. Yeah. I mean, at one of the, one of the th- interesting things about UBI with me is that when I first heard about it, and, and it wasn't actually from Andrew Yang to begin with, um, I had heard a little bit about it on some of the uh, some of the shows that I watch. Um, I thought it sounded kind of silly, you know. And then Andrew Yang was talking about it, and I thought, oh, that sounds kind of extreme. He's probably not going to get anywhere. And then I started to learn more about Andrew Yang. I started to hear him make arguments, and I was like, huh, that actually sounds a little bit more reasonable. Still not sure I'm sold on it. Then I saw him talk about it in debates, and it started to feel more and more reasonable. And and, and, and eventually, towards the end of the primary, I was like, no, this is, like, this is super important. This makes a lot of sense. And now I'm at the point where I think it needs to, I think it needs to be one of our top priorities, even mm-hmm. after the pandemic, even after we're done with the pandemic, I think that we need a universal basic income. Yeah, I think that makes sense. The last thing I wanted to say about the Republican stimulus package is that it doesn't carve out new funding for states and local governments. Instead, um, it just ex- it allows municipalities and their states to use an existing um, amount of money that was provided during the last coronavirus relief bill in a slightly more flexible manner, which, you know, that's, I think, a good thing. But ultimately, the lack of federal response to the coronavirus, the poor the for, but the poor coordination at a federal level has required that states take up the mantle of their coronavirus responses individually yeah. and that has put our states and local municipalities in a really challenging economic situation their budgets are completely blown up and destroyed they're making deals with international companies and and th- brokered by international governments for tests the you know, the um the governor of Maryland uh, Larry Hogan, who's actually a Republican, uh, had his wife, who's South Korean and kind of a celebrity over there, broker a deal with the president of South Korea to get tests because he couldn't rely on the federal government to do it. And the fact that these states are not getting funding carved out for them to be supported as they are leading our coronavirus response seems really bass backwards to me. Yeah. Trying to broker deals with foreign countries in order to get testing because the federal government is so unbelievably incompetent yeah. that it cannot provide those resources. Again, this is why Trump is being blamed for the coronavirus, or at least it why he's being blamed for how bad it has hit the United States. This is mm-hmm. why Trump is losing. Exactly. And the fact but- that he's losing... Yes. <laughs> yeah. The facts that, he, that he's losing brings us to the last thing that we want to talk about on this subject. And that is the fact that Donald Trump, he said, with universal mail-in voting, not absentee voting, which is good, 2020 will be the most inaccurate and fraudulent election in history. It will be a great embarrassment to the U.S. Delay the election until people can properly, securely and safely vote? Question mark, question mark, question mark. He did it. I he mean, it. there were a lot yep. of people that were warning people that he would do that. In fact, there was actually this hilarious case where um, there's this there's this uh, commentator on Fox News. His name is Stuart Barney. 
And several months ago, Biden had brought up the fact that uh, Trump might try to delay the election. And Barney was basically like, um, oh, well, this is this is just a silly straw man. You know, you really think Trump would do that? And he went from that to now defending Trump for saying that. Yep. So, oh, how the Overton window has shifted. <laughs> so, yeah, he's so first off, there's one important thing to address, which we've already addressed before. Mail in voting yes. is the same goddamn thing as absentee voting. It's yes. the same process. Like the process of checking to make sure that it's not fraudulent, checking to make sure that the person's not voting again, that process is the same damn thing mm -hmm. as absentee voting. Now, you can make the argument that because there's going to be more people that are mailing in ballots than normal, that that means that we need to invest in resources into our current system of absentee voting. That is 100% correct. But we totally. do have a system in place. And there is no evidence whatsoever to suggest that it will lead to widespread voter fraud. Yeah, exactly. So this is clearly just Trump trying to, like, sow distrust in our election system, which... Like, doesn't make any damn sense. I mean, maybe he believes that if he got the election delayed or if enough people got mad enough that they thought the election was fraudulent, that he'd be able to stay in power, which we know he wants to do, right? Like, when someone tells you what they want, you should listen because he's been on this kind of thing before. Specifically, the thing that comes to mind for me is when the president of China, um, Xi Jinping, back in March, was able to change the Chinese constitution to allow him to be president for life, Trump's remarks were, quote, he's now president for life, president for life, and he's great. And look, he was able to do that. I think it's great. Maybe we'll have to give that a shot someday. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> this is like... This is not a new thing that he wants to be the king of America. <laughs> yeah. And God, so he's so authoritarian. He is. Like, he's he, such he is. a fascist. I how is it? How does anybody how does anybody ever still call people on the left fascist? How do people how do people still pretend that the left in America is fascist? Like First off, actual fascists, people that proudly proclaim themselves as fascists, you think that they like the left? You think that the people <laughs> waving Nazi flags in the streets, you think that they are leftists? Yeah, I'm <laughs> like, kidding. Like, and, and the, what's more is, so they, they've now basically tried to walk this back. So yeah. the, the chief of staff, Mark Meadows, said on Sunday in defense of Trump's tweet, he was saying, uh, we're going to hold the election on November 3rd and the president's going to win. So basically trying to say like, no, we're not going to try to delay it. But in defense of it, in defense of his tweet, you know what he said? He said, there was a question mark. <laughs> Three question marks, actually. <laughs> Three question marks. <laughs> really? Oh That's your gosh. defense. There's a question mark. I mean, Is that his, his he was considering was completely subverting our democracy. But yeah. he was questioning whether he was doing it. He wasn't, he wasn't declaring it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was thinking, hey, maybe it would be a great idea if we subverted our democracy. 
Maybe we should give that a shot. Yeah, it was a question mark. God. I know. A, a couple bright points, though. One, Trump can't do this. So yeah. that's good. At least yeah, not Congress, by himself. Congress sets the date of the election, which is the first Tuesday in November. And secondly, even if Congress delayed the election, Trump would be out of office as of January 20th at noon according yeah. to the 20th Amendment. So without a, a constitutional amendment, there's no way he's staying in office after the 20th, even if he were delayed the election. So that's good. Yeah. So and that's on top even, of that... doesn't even really give him an advantage. I know, exactly. That's like the most frustrating and insane part about this. It makes me think that unless he's a total idiot and buffoon, which he is, but maybe he's trying to distract us from the other crazy stuff that's going on. You know? Yeah. But also on a bright spot is that he's been rebuked by a ton of Republicans, which is always nice to see, including one of the co-founders of the Federalist Society, which is a legal conservative group, one of the groups that has created, crafted the lists that has informed um, Trump's Supreme Court nominees. And he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times calling the tweet fascist and called it, he said that it itself is grounds for imp immediate impeachment. Oh, really? Yeah, that's, a co-founder of the that's where Federalist you, Society. But this is where you finally call him a fascist. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it wasn't when he was uh, you know, putting stormtroopers that were going into the streets and rounding up peaceful protests. You know, mm -hmm. It wasn't that. It wasn't when he you know, was trying to say, uh, we should give president for life a try. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. this, is, this is it. This is the... I mean, okay, don't punish the dog that comes home. Glad that yep. you... Yep. Glad that you're finally with us. Glad that you finally realize he's a fascist. Kind of wish you would realize that earlier. Yeah. Maybe we should just get rid of this talk at this point. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, just absolutely ridiculous and crazy. And another attempt by Trump to either distract us or to just stay in power forever. I mean, why would he even want that? Does he think he's good at this job? Is this a job he really wants? Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Zigo again. And now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments, Tips for Good. So, Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good? Well, Michael, we do Tips for Good because it has been so long since I have tossed a coin to my Witcher. Hmm. That's, you should. That should be the tip. Yeah. Oh, Valley of Plenty. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, T toss a coin to your Witcher. Yeah, and you know he's also a friend to humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, well, that's why you should pay him the yeah. coin. So that's tips for good. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Also, like uh, aside from the whole friend of humanity thing, uh, mm -hmm. you know, making the world a better place. All of that. Yes. You know. Yeah, yeah. That's also Definitely. important. So, Michael, what is our tip for good today? So this tip is actually a pretty practical one. So we've, we've you know, definitely talked about some more abstract and obscure tips in some previous weeks. But this week, we're referring you to a very specific resource to help you make your coronavirus decisions. So this is a document published by TexMed.org, or specifically the Texas Medical Association, um, with a rank-ordered list of activities um, when taken with appropriate precautions and to just help you figure out exactly like 
help you make decisions in the face of coronavirus. So I, I found this list super helpful and it's, it's not super, it's not, you know, a list of every activity you could possibly employ, but it helps develop a little bit of intuition and helps you understand how you should be making decisions. So, so here are just a few examples. So in the lowest low risk category, you've got opening the mail, um, getting re- uh, takeout from a restaurant, pumping gas, um, playing tennis, going camping. And then you've got, you know, slightly higher risk. You've got things like, um, going grocery shopping or walking in a busy downtown area further down, uh, in the more risky carry- categories, you've got shopping at a mall, swimming in a public pool, um, and then it goes all the way down to you know moderate high risk like traveling in a plane, uh, to all the way at the the highest end of the risk going to a bar. So the fact just that you know, not that I would be making the choice between going to a bar and traveling on a plane, but the fact that traveling on a plane is less risky than like eating at a buffet or going to the gym to work out or going to an amusement park helps me understand how to make decisions in the face of coronavirus in a very tactical way. And so you can find this document um, at textmed.org. You can search Google and just search for um, know your risk during COVID-19 textmed.org. And you'll find this document. It's super helpful. And that's tips for good. So for our next segment, um, we wanted to take the opportunity um, to talk about some concepts triggered by the release of a draft of the Democratic Party platform that uh, came out last week. Um, so we, we thought we'd take this opportunity to talk a little bit about progressivism in the U.S. and specifically about the need to continue to push for progressive issues and um, not to let Democratic Democrats off the hook just because it's an election year and we face a fascist. Yeah. And that is that is an important point to make. We are up against a fascist. And yeah. I've had some conversations with a lot of people politically who I respect who have basically made the argument of, look, we it's not that these conversations aren't important. It's not that these issues aren't important, but we're up against fascists right now. So let's wait until after we've defeated the, this fascist. In, and then we can start having these conversations. Then we can start talking about the difference between Medicare for all and a public option or whatnot. Um, and to that, I would argue that that kind of treats the situation that we're currently in as being traced back to Donald Trump and his fascist tendencies mm-hmm. and not as a symptom of a larger problem in the United States. One of the biggest things that one of the biggest points that Michael and I were trying to make in the primary to critique what a lot of Democrats seems to be trying to focus on is the fact that Donald Trump is not the cause of all of our problems. Now, he is terrible. He is uniquely terrible, but he's not the cause of our problems. People were willing to take a chance on Donald Trump because of how terrible the status quo was. Now, that doesn't mean that there weren't a lot of racists that voted for him, a lot of people that voted for him because they liked his racism. But think about how Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, states that were reliably Democratic for a long time, all all states that Obama won, how all three of those states managed to go to Donald Trump. Now, 
you can just dismiss them as, oh, well, it was a bunch of idiots, but that's not productive. And that is extremely short-sighted. You have to actually take a second and understand what made people get to the point where they were desperate enough to take a chance on, on Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And the reason for it is because too many people were living paycheck to paycheck. Wages have not increased when adjusted for inflation in the last several decades, people were hurting. You know, we had just come out of an economic recovery, but people were still stuck. People were still isolated in their economic situation and they wanted a change. And they perceived Hillary Clinton to basically be more of the status quo that had put them in the situation that they had been in. So what I would argue is that pointing out the flaws of the Democratic Party in an attempt to reform the Democratic Party, that is how we defeat Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I am super critical of the Democratic Party. You know, I I have not held back my criticisms of the Democratic Party, but the reason why I don't hold back my criticisms of the Democratic Party is because I want it to be better. I want it to reform. I'm not trying to burn down the Democratic Party. That's not that's not productive. It's never going to happen. Yeah. What I want is them to actually get to the point where they're representing people, where their policies are beneficial to people, where they're no longer suffering from this groupthink that causes them to default to I don't even want to say moderate positions, positions that favor the status quo. Yeah. Because the status quo currently is the rich get richer, poor stay exactly where they are. Yeah. And this week, the Democratic Party platform made some really problematic votes. And there are two in particular that I want to spend some time talking about. The first one is the DNC platform voted overwhelmingly to reject Medicare for all. Now, you can argue, oh, well, Biden, he's against it, so obviously they weren't going to do it. But the vote was 125 to 36. This is a policy that, according to exit polls, 85% of Democrats support. Mm -hmm. So I feel like a lot of people seem to be under this false perception that the Democrats are just, they're just not as liberal as people like Bernie Sanders. They're not as liberal as the the left. But when it comes to Democratic voters, that's just not true. Exit poll after exit poll shows overwhelmingly that Democratic voters are absolutely with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren on the issues. They support Medicare for all. And yet the leadership, the DNC leadership, voted overwhelmingly to reject it. Mm-hmm. And that is just a huge fuck you to the Democratic base. And yeah. that's not okay. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's right. Yeah, and I've got, I've got a few points about this um, argument that we just shouldn't be talking about these issues right now. We shouldn't be pushing for more progressive policies right now. We shouldn't be, dim- uh, you know, criticizing moderate um, elected Democrats. I think I think they boil down to basically four points. So first is just missing out on the long-term um, important benefit of 
continuing to push for these progressive policies. So since 2000, um, Democratic voters have gotten significantly more liberal, at least larger proportions of them have identified themselves as either liberal or very liberal. So back in 2000, 27% of Democratic voters um, identify themselves as liberal or very liberal, according to Pew Research. In 2019, that number was up to 47%, a huge increase in the overall liberalness of the party. Now, that's not even taking into account the fact that the Overton window has also shifted. And so what actually qualifies as moderate or liberal has, pro- has, has probably shifted in the more liberal direction as well. So the fact that like continuing to make these arguments does have an impact and make a difference means that when we're not making these arguments, we're missing that impact. We're potentially losing yeah. traction and losing ground. My second point is that I find it very strange when moderate Democrats they kind of feel hurt by progressives pushing for progressive policies and criticizing more moderate policies. And the reason I find this strange is because, you know, this is not true uh, regardless of the policy, but in general, more progressive policies are on, are just further to the left on the spectrum of democratic policies. Like Medicare for all is more progressive than a, um, you know, universal health care that is at a lower cost, uh, but it's not a single-payer system. So what I find strange is that moderate Democrat, like elected moderate Democrats, would be frustrated that progressives are pushing for these progressive issues because you would assume that people who are being persuaded by these more progressive issues would still prefer Democratic policies to Republican policies. So when you're pushing people to the left— the people that are disadvantaged may be um, moderate Democrats because they remain moderate when their electorate is moving to the left, which means they're out of touch with their electorate and worse at representing them. But overall, it doesn't harm the Democratic Party, and it certainly doesn't harm the electorate. Yeah. And third, um, third, I think it treats the situation we're in right now, and this, and this is the answer to the question of like, well, isn't it okay to just wait? I think it treats the situation we're in right now as not a crisis. To your point, Nathan, I think it treats the status quo as not a huge problem. The fact that tens of thousands of people die that wouldn't have to die under a single-payer system is a crisis. The fact that climate change and really aggressive climate change uh, policies are necessary in order to prevent uh, ecological catastrophe is a crisis. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And and finally, I think another why now reason is that if we wait, we will fail to take advantage of a importantly unique moment in our national and political history, which is actually the presence of a pandemic, which is laying bare so many of the critical inequalities that we have been trying to convince people exist, but are now being more visual and more apparent than almost ever before. And so- yeah. At this point, this represents a critical opportunity to be able to tell people that the policies we're pushing for are important and to get people onto that more progressive, more liberal bandwagon. Yeah. I mean, the important point I would make is that in the United States, we have a right-wing party and a fascist party. Now... 
maybe you could be generous and refer to the Democratic Party as a moderate right-wing party. But when you look at the policies of the United States versus the rest of the world, the Democratic Party is super right-wing. I mean, take Canada, for example. Take Britain, for example. The conservative parties in both of those countries, it would be political suicide for them to come out against the single-payer system. Like, both of those countries have single-payer systems, and it would be political suicide for them to come out against it. In fact, the conservatives in Britain have an overwhelming majority right now. They run the government. And yeah, they have made some attempts in order to um, reduce some of the coverage of the single-payer system, but they're absolutely not in favor of ending it. That would be idiotic. That would be stupid. But in the United States, the so-called left-wing party, they can't even acknowledge the fact that a single-payer system is better. I mean, honestly, it might, in the United States, Michael and I sound very leftist. Honestly, our social democratic ideology in compared to um, a lot of leftists around the world is pretty moderate. I mean, I have had heated arguments with actual Marxists and actual socialists in which I was the right winger. You know, I was the person who was advocating for free market capitalism. And honestly, the way I see it, social democracy is really the only way that you can get capitalism to actually work. Because if we're heading down this path that we're currently heading down, then all it's going to lead to is the revolution that conservatives are terrified of. But if you start, if you keep oppressing your people economically the way you have been, it's going to happen. And the way that you save that from happening is to do what Scandinavia does, where you actually have a government that works for the people. You have an economy that works for the people. The answer to the question, do people serve the economy or does the economy serve the people? If you approach that from the point of view of people serve the economy you're going to have a revolution eventually. And honestly, I like capitalism. I don't actually want that to happen at this point. I, I think that, I think social democracy is the best of both worlds. It allows us to have the innovation and the free thought behind innovation that capitalism brings while also making sure that we are fighting against those social inequalities. Yeah, and if you want to answer the question... In this country, do we think people serve the economy or the economy serves the people? Look at the Republican Party, the party currently controlling the White House and the Senate, trying to force people to risk their lives to go back to work. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the lieutenant governor of Texas even made the argument as a former asshat that basically we need to let granny die to save the economy. Like granny should be willing to die to save the economy. Mm -hmm. And that is just so morally bankrupt. 
And the fact that the Democratic Party right now is being complicit in that, the supposed left-wing party is being complicit in that, is just disheartening. And another terrible decision that they made recently, and this one, I mean, this one was actually surprising for me, is that they voted overwhelmingly against marijuana legalization. And it was a vote of 106 to 50. I mean, the fact that any party, let alone the left-wing party, in 2020 is against legalizing marijuana when two-thirds of the nation support it. It's just insane. Mm -hmm. It is one of the biggest no-brainer issues of our time. The fact that it's still illegal in a lot of the country is so stupid. The fact that there is still a federal ban on it is so idiotic. And that right there is going to be our last segment. But first, we have our favorite segment. So now it's time for one of our favorite segments. Asshat of the Week. So, Nathan... Who is our honoree this week? <laughs> well, Michael, our asshat this week is another return customer. Oh, man. Which I don't know if this is the second time or the third time this guy has been on here, but it's Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton. Oh, Tom Cotton, come on down. Our favorite fascist. Yeah, and racist. <laughs> and racist, We shouldn't yeah. pretend like those are always the same thing. But that they're definitely the same thing here. <laughs> God, there are so many levels to his ass hattery this week. Yeah, it's ass hats all the way down. <laughs> yeah. So Nathan, what so, do you do this week? So the first level of ass hattery is the fact that he has proposed legislation to pre- prevent federal funding from going towards school curriculums that adopt what's called the 1619 project by the New York times. So if you're unfamiliar with the 1619 project, it's basically a curriculum that is um, supposed to be put into uh, us school systems in order to highlight slavery in us history to basically talk about how horrific it was, how terrible it was, and you know how we need to learn from it apparently though tom cotton doesn't like it when we talk about how bad slavery actually was because it just it just takes away from all the good things that we've done it's funny because his first part of that remark where he says quote we have to study the history of slavery and its role uh and its impact on the development of our country because otherwise we can't understand our country Sounds like, you know, honestly, a pretty woke position. Yeah. But apparently, presenting it as a bad thing, which it was. Yeah. <laughs> and focusing on how bad it was, which it was, that is the part that he has a problem with. That is the mm. part that he's not okay with. And as if that's not bad enough, as if it's not bad enough that he wants to deprive federal funding from schools that teach slavery accurately. Yeah in order to create this bullshit nationalist narrative that makes him feel better about some of the truly heinous things that our country has done. In defense of it, he said, quote, as the founding fathers said, it was the necessary evil 
upon which the union was built. But the union was built in a way, as Lincoln said, to put slavery on the course to its ultimate extinction. A necessary evil. But, but Nathan, wasn't he just, you know, quoting the founding fathers? No. And, and that's, the, that's the next level of asshattery because he tried to defend his statement by tweeting, quote, this is the definition of fake news because people were reporting on the fact that he referred to slavery as a necessary evil. He said, quote, I said, asterisk, the founding fathers viewed slavery as a necessary evil and asterisk and described how they put the evil institution on the path to extinction, a point frequently made by Lincoln. So notice that it's an asterisk, not a quotation, not, not a quotation mark when he says the founders viewed slavery as a necessary evil. So he's making it sound like, oh, no, man, I was just saying what they thought. Let's go back to his quotation. <laughs> he said... As the founding fathers said, it was a necessary evil. Yeah. He didn't say the founding fathers believed it was a necessary evil. He said, as the founding fathers said, it was a necessary evil. So he's trying to pretend that his words were taken out of context. So to prove that, he took his words out of context. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And also, even if he was right, the fact that he's referring to it as fake news, like, you said those words. You can argue, you can try to argue that it was a misinterpretation but fake news, the definition of fake news is literally a fake story mm -hmm. that has no basis in any form of reality. Exactly. So even if this was just a misinterpretation, that's not fake news. So the fact that he's doing that is just another, you know, it's the another cherry deflection. On top. It's the, yeah, it's it's the, the cherry, cherry on, top on top of the asset. <laughs> so he wants to take federal funding away from schools that teach slavery accurately. He defended it by saying that slavery was a necessary evil and then he tried to pretend that he didn't say what he said. This guy's going to run for president, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody that can make the list this often is going to run for president. This, mark my words, this asshat is going to run for president probably in 2024. And we need to be prepared for that because there's no way we can let this fascist son of a bitch anywhere near the White House. Yeah, like, I couldn't imagine what that's like. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's even honestly, it's I would worse. say it's it's worse. Yeah. Because he at least like he at least has the ability to form complex thought. Yep. Um That's dangerous. <laughs> that's dangerous. So God. Congratulations, Tom Cotton, for being our ass hat of, of the week. week. And so for our last segment, which was inspired by the failure of the DNC platform to uh, promote the legalization of marijuana, we started to talk about, as we were planning for this episode, about, you know, what are the pros and cons of legalization of marijuana? Why is it different from decriminalization? And also, how to get to be illegal in the first place? And so we wanted to do a bit of a deep dive on marijuana and marijuana legalization um, so that you guys can be just as outraged as us that it's not as part of the DNC platform. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the origins of marijuana criminalization, 
I was so shocked to find out <laughs> was racism. What? The U.S. You know, making racist it's like laws? That, <laughs> it's like that scene from Casablanca, you know? I am shocked, shocked to find you making laws about racism again. <laughs> yeah, so this, this that, goes back That reference was probably understood by one person. Yeah. So for the one person that understood that reference, that was for you. Yeah, one listener, including me. <laughs> oh, you did understand that reference? No, I didn't. That, uh, okay. That's one person other than me. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a shame. You got to watch Casablanca, man. I, I know. I'm... I'm uh, I'm currently going back into movie history. I think I made it back to some some 60s classics recently. So I'll I'll be to Casablanca soon. Sweet. All right. So anyways, as we said, marijuana criminalization started with America's favorite pastime, racism. (laughs) So for a lot of American history, marijuana was legal. In fact... Back in the uh, 1830s, uh, and this is from History.com, they, they did a uh, nice little breakdown of um, how things kind of progressed with the criminalization of marijuana. Um, back in the 1830s, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people used marijuana for its, its medical benefits. Yeah. Um, hemp was also grown because it was a very useful plant in building ropes yeah. uh, and such. And... Really, nobody really spared it a second thought for it. Um, it wasn't until between uh, 1916 and 1931 that states started to outlaw marijuana. Hmm. And the reason why they did it was because they were terrified of Mexicans. Yeah. They wanted to come up with basically a reason for Americans to hate all of these Mexicans yeah. that were flowing into the country. And for them to be able to illegally and unconstitutionally search, detain, and deport Mexican immigrants. Yes. So, and also, let's not forget the classic, uh, the classic fear-mongering patriarchal argument of all these scary Mexican men are going to come in and sexually assault mm-hmm. women and... Um, get them hooked on marijuana. Yep. Uh, yeah, exactly. In, in fact, specifically as part of, a, of hearings reviewing laws restricting marijuana in the 1930s, there were claims made about marijuana's ability to cause men of color, so black and Mexican men, to become violent and solicit sex from white women, which then um, led to the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937, which effectively banned its use and sales in the U.S. Yeah. And there was a lot of really weird propaganda about Mm -hmm. it, like that it it incited violent crimes, that it created a lust for blood, and that it gave its its users superhuman strength. Oh, no. it's so funny because like <laughs> all of these things are the hero. very opposite of what yeah, it actually exactly. does. <laughs> <laughs> like it's going to, um, they're going to use it to, uh, and distribute it to American school children mm-hmm. and all the research at the time from actual medical experts basically said, uh, what the hell? Like, yeah, none of this is true. Exactly. Um, but a Reefer. year after the film Reefer Madness was yeah. released, that the marijuana 
Tax Act of uh, 1937 was ultimately passed. And all of it was just bogus. I mean, according to the U.S. uh, Drug Enforcement Administration's fact sheet, there is no case of a death from overdose for marijuana. Mm -hmm. Like, that's never been reported. And also, multiple areas of research have shown that alcohol is way more dangerous than marijuana. Yeah. I mean, first off, evident by the fact that people actually do die from alcohol overdoses, but they don't die from marijuana overdoses. Uh, An old joke that this girl I used to date used to tell me was, hey, I actually heard that they killed a lab rat with marijuana. I mean, there was a lot of it, and they had to drop it from very high. (laughs) Yeah. No, it, it is it is ultimately not a particularly dangerous substance. And yet, because of the propaganda campaigns and, you know, fear mongering, it has remained a schedule one drug, which is categorized with the most dangerous drugs, um, you know, deemed deemed by our federal government to be the mo- one of the most dangerous drugs um, to this day. Which is like, which is yeah. totally laughable to Nathan's point. Well, well, let's, well, hold on a second. So let's talk a little bit about how things kind of got better and then got worse. Sure. Because a lot of people often do view U.S. history as like, a, oh, it's a, it's a natural progression to where things will slowly but surely get better. So in the late 1960s, uh, these marijuana laws started to affect... Uh, white people and upper class college students. And they started to realize, wait a minute, we can use this to arrest white people too? No, we can't do that. We got to stop that. Yeah. <laughs> so states actually started to uh, soften a lot of their penalties for marijuana possession and marijuana use. However, That changed under the Nixon administration in which he declared his war on drugs and he used the war on drugs as a political excuse to basically take down his political opponents. And before you start thinking, oh, wow, Nathan, that's that's some tinfoil hat you got on there. um, Let me read you a quotation that I found absolutely chilling. And uh, I'm definitely curious to see Michael's reaction on this because I have not read this quotation, this uh, quotation to him yet. So this quotation is from John Ehrlichman. It is quite possible that I mispronounced that. Uh, And John Ehrlichman was Nixon's aide on domestic affairs. He was later convicted during the Watergate scandal. And there is a book that came out in 1996 called Smoke and Mirrors, The War on Drugs and the uh, Politics of Failure, in which he was interviewed about the war on drugs. He was asked about why, why they started it. And his answer was chilling. Quote, you want to know what this was really all about? The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. 
You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to either be against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing them both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Straight from the horse's mouth. That is completely, simultaneously, completely astounding. And so, and also obvious. Yeah. Like, we know the war on drugs was a pretense and a failure, but the fact that they knew it so clearly and strategically maliciously. and maliciously, yeah. Yeah. It makes you wonder about whether our country works. Yeah. Whether it can. So that legacy, the legacy of the war on drugs, you know, especially with marijuana, is a legacy of racism, xenophobia, and authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. It's a legacy of demonizing the use of substances, which is a victimless crime, in an effort to take out political opponents. Mm Mm-hmm. And that legacy is not only being carried out and supported and continued by the Republican Party, but also by the Democratic Party. Yep. And we can't accept that. It would be easy for someone to respond, well, you know, how, how could drugs be a victimless crime? when it's associated with organized crime and violent crime throughout the U.S. But the reality about the war on drugs and the prohibition of things like drugs in the past and the present and is that they create that violence, the prohibition yeah. itself, not the substance. You know, when, yeah. when we had alcohol prohibition in the 1920s, no one thinks that alcohol itself these days causes people to organize spontaneous criminal enterprises and be organized gangs and cause violence. Maybe bar fights, but other than that. (laughs) And the same is true of drugs as well. You know, marijuana is a victimless crime until you turn it into something for which people will kill. And so the removal of those of the prohibition is the key to resolving the crime associated with drugs. Um, And we could do a much deeper dive into opium, the opioid epidemic, and heroin, but specifically focused on marijuana. That is one of the reasons why legalization is key, not just decriminalization. Because decriminalization is the lessening of legal punishments um, and penalties, but it retains the prohibition of the substance. And as a result, it will maintain the system of, um, like, black market distribution. And so all of the problems associated with the creation of a underground market would continue under decriminalization. Legalization, which with the accompanying regulation, taxation, 
and control of the substance, just like any other thing that we can like control, substance we control in our society, like alcohol or tobacco or vape pods, um, is required in order to resolve the worst harms that this racist and conniving policy has done to our society or will do so our society if we don't undo them. All right. And with that, we will finish off with our highlights. So Nathan, what was your highlight this week? My highlight this week was, well, is the fact that this is going to be my last week of classes for my community college students. And I am, you know, very proud of my students at this point. I've seen a lot of really great speeches over the course of this semester. And it's always sad when a class ends, but it also feels very relieving. Um, so I'll have a little bit of a break before my next set of classes starts. And I, I don't know. I, I feel good about that. That's good. What about you, Michael? What's your highlight? My highlight is going to sound super silly and domestic and dumb. And it is that we finally got a dining room table, which sounds silly, but for, you know, we ordered this table um, like a month and a half ago. <laughs> and it has been, I don't know, I guess maybe they were waiting for the trees to grow or something, but they, they seem to have taken forever to ship it. But anyway, it finally got here and it uh, it's so nice to have like our home more complete feeling. Um, we had previously been using like a patio furniture table to eat on and it just, it looks great. feels great. And it really ties the room together to, uh, to quote Mr. Lebowski. Um, nice. Yeah. And so with that, thank you so much for listening to the Perspectrum. And you'll hear from us again next week.